Mike McGurn. Um, pleasure being here with you in Belfast. Um, I learned something new about you. I've been, I, I know quite a bit about you and I told you I've been waiting. We've, been, we've spent a couple of days together now and I've been waiting, holding back on some questions uh, that I've been dying to find out about, waiting for this moment. Um, but I just learned that you played the drums. I was a very poor drummer back in the day. As a, I was a, a crazy teenager and I had a lot of energy and I was doing a lot of s silly things like stealing from shops and robbing orchards for apples, sniffing glue and I played in a band, took magic mushrooms all when I was 13, 14 and thankfully running, my running career took away that energy and saved me probably from a life of, not a, as good a life as it turned out to be, but now I played the drums and I, 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 a big part of my life is family, sport and music, those three, I just love music. I'd listen to music 24 hours a day. Still it. today? So, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm still listening to songs back, back from back in my school days. I have CDs. I have tapes, which you wouldn't know. You know, I have iTunes, Spotify, you name it. I have it. I just love music. It's been a big part of my life. And when your athletes come into the gym, do you select the music? That's a bone of contention. Uh, I give them the choice, but nobody want, the athletes don't want to put themselves out there because of criticism. So I'm playing my 80s stuff, my Irish stuff, my my uh, U2, my undertones, my stiff little fingers, stuff they've never heard of, but quite ironically, their parents are, have obviously heard and they've heard it through their parents and they love it. Like the other day I had uh, The Jam on, which is a 19, late 70s, 80s band, and the energy and the intensity, because they're like a post-punk band and they just love the, the, the jam. So they're discovering stuff as well as music-wise, as well as training-wise, so it's quite good. Yeah, and energy or anger when you were 13, 14? Both. Uh, you know, grew up in Eskillen, a small town in, in Fermanagh, Northern Ireland. Great place to live. Probably, you know, just had too much energy for my age, you know, and I just always wanted to do stuff. I, I couldn't sit in the seat at one time, so that's why I got involved in music. You know, I used to be out till 10 o'clock at night. Great parents, but found it hard to control me, probably. Uh, didn't go to the, the good school, which was St. Michael's, went to the bad boy school, which was St. Joseph's. I remember one lunchtime, and again, there's no big secrets, I'd gone home and sniffed glue all lunchtime and come home then, uh, back to school and started throwing stones through the, the, the dinner hall window and got suspended. So didn't have the the most sort of like sanest uh, school days, but it did, didn't do me harm. Taught me what not to do rather than what to do. So now with my own kids, I can look for those signs, you know. And magic mushrooms. Yeah, uh, we were playing a gig in the vintage uh, with Frankie Smith and we were out in a place called the Roundo uh, before the gig and doing a few magic mushrooms before we went to play. And it was just what you did back then. We got them from, uh, I think it was up in Derragonley, a place called Derragonley where they used to grow. Went up and got a few and took some before we played. So that got that psychedelic hit, you know. Wow, have you have you had a psychedelic hit since? No, that was when I was thirteen, fourteen, and let me tell you, that's a long, long time ago. You know, so. You know. Any um, did you remember anything from that experience? A unique thing from that experience that kind of stuck with you? Yeah, I did. That night we were playing the vintage, and we were playing a Christy Berg song. I think it was called "In a Country Churchyard" or "In a Churchyard" or something. And I was way out of tune, and I, I remember Frankie turning and going, "Mickey." Are you with us? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm great, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. You know, but uh, look, at it's one of life's experiences that I don't regret, but I don't condone either, you know. So. Yeah, and do you and you used to go by Mickey? Well, that's my name, Mickey McGurn. Uh, it's only when I went over to England and got involved in coaching that 
initially I I got the nickname Irish because my first gig in sport was rugby league and being a Catholic from Northern Ireland uh, it was quite ironic that in my school we didn't play rugby we didn't play cricket because we're considered British we played Gaelic and hurling so the Aussies and the Kiwis that were involved in rugby league in England couldn't believe that I'd never even held a rugby ball so they used to call me Irish 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 gives the ball Mike gives the ball so they call me Irish in rugby league and then they sort of transferred my name to Mike McGurn which more official well yeah but it's weird because my mother obviously christened me Michael so somebody phoned the house and said is Mickey there or is Mike there she go no there's no Mickey here there's no Mike but there's a Michael if you'd like to speak to him so that she according to her it's Michael but it's Mickey at home Mike in coaching terms so I have a couple of different names I can use you know and yeah. in Australia and in New Zealand it's Irish I'm known as Irish but there you go so you're 13 14 15 you have um, a lot of energy uh, maybe some anger as well and you said you discovered running yes how uh, again because of my disruptive nature my mother's from a place in the west of Ireland a beautiful place called Belmullet in Mayo that's where she was born and bred so when I was 15 she sent me there for the summer to get me away from Northern Ireland and not the distractions because to be fair Enniskillen was great but probably the people that I hung around with glue sniffers punks that sort of thing so I went down to Mayo a very rural part of Ireland beautiful Belmont's beautiful and my uncles and my cousins were big into their fitness and we went for a 10 mile run that was their their strategy to get rid of me because I'd gone down to Belmullet and the first week I ended up burning wind bushes with matches. I was a bit of a... To causing trouble immediately. Yep, pyromaniac. I used to go around with matches and uh, burn bushes. And I also remember I used to go into the local sweet shop and steal the football stickers with the bubble gum as well. So they walked in one day and it was like 10 boxes of like panini football stickers and bubble gum. So they realised I'd stole it. So they took me for a 10 mile run. Now I had played Gaelic football before. I'd played football... I did all the sport, but I hadn't ran. So we're doing this 10 mile run and I found it quite easy. I don't know why. And with a mile to go, I kicked on and I burned my cousin in the run, got back to the house and he got back and he said, you're a D-I-C-K. He said that the whole thing was trying to try to wear you out, but you burnt me. So for the next six or seven weeks, me and him did a bit of training, a bit of running training. And me being me, when I do something, I either do it right or don't do it at all. So I had two choices, walk away and let him do it on his own or do it. So I ended up doing it with him. Uh, went back up to the north for school, entered a few cross-country races. And But when you with running with your cousin, did you uh, did you have that competitive uh, spirit in yeah, you? Like I, you, wanted, you wanted to burn him out and beat him? I, I'm a terrible loser. In fact, I hate losing more than I enjoy winning. And it's a terrible way to be. I have been diagnosed as a perfectionist, so I have, which is not it's not all it's not as cracked up to be. And I just cannot stand losing. And I would rather bite my finger off than lose at something. And I tend not to do things that I won't win. That's why I don't play golf, because I'm not gonna win at golf, so I don't do it. I don't play video games with my son, because he would kill me, so I just say no, I'm not interested. So that and look at it's just the way I am. I, that, I take that from my mother's side. Mayo people are very, very passionate. They're very intense. They have a great outlook on life. 
the the perfectionist side i don't know where i got it from i might i'm probably on the spectrum somewhere you know that's just the way i am uh but it wasn't a bad thing so then i went back up north i got involved in a few cross-country races did fairly well for the amount of effort i'd put in and then i i end up coming third in the irish schools cross-country championship and back in that time if you were what is there a standard distance for cross-country uh, running uh at that time it was eight thousand meters uh yeah. 8K, you know which uh, is about five miles five miles yeah and i suppose even back then i was still fairly slight i i i inherently had a strong aerobic capacity so i could run all day i just couldn't run fast i'd never been coached in running because there wasn't really many coaches in in around the area so I saw the coach from Donegal, which is the neighbouring county, and he said, look, he said, if you continue on this tra- trajectory, there's a great chance you could get a scholarship to the States. And I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, ah, he says, you go on a scholarship, they pay for your studies. I goes, I don't want to study, I just want to run. He goes, no, no, he says, you have to study and run. I goes, oh, we'll see, we'll see. And so I continued running for the next two or three years. He coached me, a guy called Eamon Harvey, a brilliant coach. I kept winning different titles at 5,000, 10,000 meters on the track, cross country, ran for Ulster, ran for Ireland and got for a scholarship. And that was my goal then. And once I had that goal that I was gonna get a scholarship, there was no more glue, no drinking, no magic mushrooms, none of that carry on. I, I never went out. If I did, I drank milk in our local bar called Charlie's. Every Friday night, me and my mates went out. I'd, I'd watch sport and drink milk. They'd drink beer and get drunk. I'd go home to get up train the next morning. Every Sunday morning at nine o'clock, I met Anne Kearns, who was an Olympic canoeist, and her husband, Stevie, who just passed away in November. And we used to do an 11-mile run up a big hill every Sunday at nine o'clock without fail. So that was my go-to for a couple of years. That was my focus. I tried to do the studies. I'm not very intelligent. Uh, I, I, don't, I didn't pass the 11 plus, which was an entrance exam when you were 11. Uh, so I did a BTEC course at the local technical college. Still going to America, but not to study, just to uh, train and run. I couldn't give a fiddlers about but the, the academic side. But when I got there, I changed my tune pretty quick. You know? And you kind of have to, right? Because when you get there, you realize that there is no running. Well, you know, because you've been there. You, yeah. yeah, you've been there, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's almost like a culture shock when you realize that if you don't go to class, you don't do the exams, you don't pass the exams, then they won't let you run. That, yeah, you're on academic, uh, what's it called? Academic suspension, you know. So you, well, obviously you've been there too. So my first semester there, I didn't go to class. I didn't do any, any studying. And I, my GPA was like a 1.4 maybe or something, or even less. So I was on academic probation straight away. And I got pulled from the uh, competitive side and I had to go to study hall three hours every night to get that grade back up. But what helped me a lot there, Danny, was I picked the first course came into my head, mechanical engineering. I actually wanted to be a lorry driver like my father. He drove a lorry all his life and that's all I wanted to do. So my perspective was go to the States spend four years training, go to the Olympics, come back and drive a lorry. That's all I wanted to do. I picked up pretty quick with the training and trying to stay uh, academically current. I had to do something that I enjoyed. So I changed my major to sports science and fell in love with it straight away. So that was a real uh, gold rush moment. So then I enjoyed what I was doing. It went hand in hand with my training. So it made me, it allowed me to do informed choices. 
And because the university I was at, Temple in Philadelphia, was such a sporting university, I got interested in all types of sports and strength and conditioning. Yeah, and Temple's a big university in Philadelphia, um, Division One. Division One, I think 40,000 students. It had a Division One basketball team. In fact, the time I was at it, we were number one in the nation, in the world. We were uh, in the world. Yeah. In the world, uh, our football team wasn't so good, but they still got one hundred twenty thousand supporters. Went there every game at the Vet Stadium. Uh, we had a, a good uh, uh, soccer, as they called the team, ladies soccer. Good hockey team, not so good on track. That's why I was there. Yeah. But, uh, so how did you, how did you do there as an athlete? Uh, okay. Or personally, did you improve? Because now you're being coached at a, um, with probably good facilities. I'm assuming a large coaching staff, people taking this seriously. Facility-wise, excellent. Uh, Staff-wise, excellent. Other sports, excellent. We probably had the worst coach in the history of track and field. From a perspective was, when I left Fermanagh and I was going to go to America, I was running maybe 35, 40 miles a week. Week one in Philadelphia, I did something like 120. Week two, I did 125. I worked up to 160 miles a week. Now, me being 17, 18, very naive, I did that. So it meant year one, I had a perineal release operation in my calf. Year two, I had an entrapment in my lower quad. Year three, I had another entrapment in my upper quad. And year four, I had a disectomy in my back. So you were simply overworked? Just over From the beginning? From the beginning, yep. And I remember in December, in year one of my freshman year, it snowed really heavily in Philly, so we couldn't go outside to train. So we had us uh, do wall drills for two hours, literally against the wall, high knees for two hours. I did it because I wasn't going to let them beat me, but then I couldn't walk for two weeks with doms. So very naive. But to be fair to Temple, it taught me what not to do rather than what the, than rather what to do. I mean, and that's half the thing in, in, in my game. If you know what you shouldn't be doing, then you can figure out what you should be doing. I loved the experience. I went to Philadelphia as a nerd, very introvert. Qu- distance runners are nerdy. You know, they, they're very isolated. They don't engage that much. I learned pretty quick, as you probably discovered too, it's kill or be killed in the States. So within six months, my personality had changed. I'd learned how to engage with people, how to talk to people. Otherwise, you, you had to, otherwise you wouldn't survive. And it totally transformed, transformed me as a person, not only in my athletics way of thinking, but in my personality. You Was know? it your first time in the States? I'd gone the year before to a place called Wildwood in New Jersey, and all the Irish students would understand that because everybody goes to Wildwood in their... their in year 11 or 12 of school because we go illegally we work on the boardwalk we drink pints we just we all we get burnt every day in the sun we don't wear sunblock we lie out on the beach and it's just a great experience so it set the tone for me you know so yeah but then when i went i made one big mistake i i didn't come home for two years because the way the season went i was running cross country from september to january I ran indoor from January to uh, the end of spring. Then I ran outdoor in the summer season. So, and then I worked on the built-in sites during the summer, did it all over again. And I stayed away too long and I got really homesick. So when I came home then that time, I wasn't gonna go back. And my dad said, you're going back. You're not hanging around here, making a mess of yourself, where you go, you know, so. 
So back you were. Back you. I was. And when I went back then, I settled. You know, I, I didn't improve as a runner per se because the injuries and the training wasn't scaled, it wasn't scaled correctly. But I learned a lot about sports science. I got involved with other sports that I never experienced before. Basketball, American football, baseball, ice hockey, which I loved. And I learned the training techniques of those different sports so that I could bring them back when I came home. And you were telling me you had a few internships as a student with these different sports teams as well. Yeah, right? yeah. I did some time with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, which is NFL, which was okay. You know, if I'm honest and I'm pretty transparent, I found them very lazy, you know, and because it's such a power sport that they only work for five, six, seven seconds at the most, you know. So, the, and the athletes were quite, they were quite lazy in that, they didn't have to get any food. People brought food for them. If they wanted to drink a water, somebody ran over a water bottle. If they wanted to go to the uh, the indoor facility, they got a golf cart, that type thing. But look, at it is what it is. I'm not going to change that. Yeah. Uh, basketball was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. I got to meet Charles Barkley. He was a legend at the time. The mound round king of rebound, he was called. Great, great attitude. Great work. So was this at the 76ers? At the 76ers. Yeah. But I also ended up plastering his house. He lived in Westchester. And the Irish company who I work for, they got the contract to plaster his house. So we plastered his house. That's hilarious. And every Friday, he's got a good kick out of this. Every Friday at five o'clock, that was it, down tools, we were going to the Irish bar. So we didn't go home and get a shower. We had like a big, big steel drum full of water. And we'd just jump in, have a wash, put on some clothes, and he'd bring out some bottles of Miller. And goes, boys, it's Miller time. And we'd be in the back of the pickup, going into town, drinking the bottles of Miller, having washed in a steel barrel. And it was just, listen, when you're 18, 19, you do that stuff. Priceless. You know, and I remember even that summer doing pull-ups on the scaffolding. So I'd be up maybe 15, 20 metres high, which is quite high, and they'd be plastering. I'd be just a labourer because I couldn't plaster. And there I was doing pull-ups on the scaffold, and Barkley would be going, you're mad, you're mad. And I'll never forget a story, and this is one of, I suppose, my claim to fame. Barclay had come down one day and he was looking up, how are you getting on? And goes, yeah, yeah, good. And I was labouring, so my job was to get the plaster in the buckets and bring it up to the plaster he put it on the wall. And I used to wear sunglasses because it was so bright in, in Philly during the summer. And I was up about three or four scaffolds. And we used to take a lot of shortcuts, like if the scaffold wasn't even, we'd stick some bricks under it. We wouldn't put the, the, all the planks across, we'd put a couple to make it quicker. So I'm up the scaffold with two buckets uh, of plaster in each hand and the plaster had been plastered and I'm looking up and the plaster's hitting me in the sunglasses and rather than put the buckets down, take it off and clean it, I said to Fergal, Fergal, guide me, guide me. He's like, what do you mean? I goes, I can't see a thing. So I'm up there here walking across these planks and I, did, I couldn't see a thing. Left or right, and he's guiding me where to put the plaster. And the part is going, Jesus Christ, it's nuts. Yeah. Was he the biggest guy you've seen in, in your life? Up no, then? because he wasn't that big for, uh, for the basketball. He was six four, okay, but, but a lot yeah. of them was six seven, six eight. So in context, I'd seen bigger. They weren't as stocky as him because before Charles had a fair bit of body fat. His diet wasn't the best. But he could jump and he could rebound, and that's all it took. So some of his peers in the 76ers were taller and skinnier, but he wasn't the tallest, but a great guy, a great guy. That's, that's good to hear. Um, and as an athlete there in, uh, in Temple, was that the first time you maybe you were introduced to, a, uh, to, to lifting in a serious way? Or have you lifted it in Ireland before? I had never touched a weight before I went to America. I didn't touch a weight at all during my time as an athlete because it wasn't 
it, it wasn't sort of uh, encouraged. There was no strength and condition program for runners. And when I left Ireland, I was told makes weak, so weights make you slow. And that was probably still the mantra in distance running then, oh, don't do weights as a runner, you don't need them to make you slow. So I actually didn't get into weights until I started watching what the NFL players did, what our college football team did. And it was only, it was only through my own inquisition and uh, doing it as my sports science course that I realized that all athletes, no matter if they're power sports, distance runners, whatever, should all be doing some type of conditioning. So I, I sourced that myself and I went in myself and did it myself. And I watched what the other athletes did and then I learned from that. But I wasn't given a weights program. We didn't have a, weight, a strength coach for running at, at Temple. And in retrospect, that was a mistake. Huge, huge. But I'm glad that I went in and I watched what the guys did because I learned how to Olympic lift, how to squat properly, how to deadlift, do all the types of conditioning work that needs for all the sports, especially stuff like gymnastics and wrestling, which I found very interesting, you know, yeah. which really helped me then in my career going forward. Those injuries that you faced in the beginning when you showed up and they're making you run 150 miles a week when you're absolutely not used to it, um, did that change you? Face were these the first maybe serious injuries you faced as yeah. a as a runner as an athlete? I'd never been injured until I went to the states. Did it change me? It did on two levels, Danny. Uh, and I'm asking because every serious, in air quotes, injury that I faced, I feel like changed me psychologically a little bit, um, and also made me more aware of another area of my body uh, that maybe I wasn't focused on before because I had no reason to focus on. Yeah, well, I suppose I'll deal with the first thing. It gave me a lot more empathy because after my first surgery, I hadn't seen the track coach for about, I think, eight weeks. So I had the surgery, I had to recover, do some rehab. I went back on the track and all he said to me was, you look fat. Not like, how are you? That's, that's, that's like? a nice coach. Yeah. And I suppose that really set the, the lines of demarcation. He was gone in my eyes then. So me being me, giving back both bars and then some, I won't say on air what I said to him, but I suppose if I wasn't on full scholarship, he probably could have taken away. But so it, it taught me empathy. It then taught me too, I started to think, well, why am I getting injured? You know, I couldn't argue with him what his exercise prescription was because he was the coach. I did what he asked to do, but I learned to modify it further down the line. And then it brings me back to that point. He taught me what not to do rather than what to do in so many levels, how you treat your athletes. He was on $250,000 a year as a track coach. His job was to get results. And in hindsight, now I get that. So he was pushing me to be better, but he just did it in the wrong way. So he taught me how not to coach an athlete at, at any level, which was sometimes that's a good thing too, you know? Yeah. Did you ever think of uh, becoming a running coach? No, because once I left Temple, I was never going to the Olympics anymore. I, I sort of realized that I, I wasn't that good anyway, if I'm honest. I just worked hard to get to where I got to. I didn't have a lot of talent. It was just through hard work. I wasn't going to the Olympics. I wasn't going to be a world champion. And when, when did that settle in with you? Because you said all you wanted in life was to go to America, run for four years, go to the Olympics, and then drive lorries when you get back. Yeah, probably um, made uh, junior, senior year. I fell out of love of running and that was it. I wasn't going to compete anymore when I graduated. I wasn't going to come back to Ireland and 
be any good at running or reach any high level. Well, I would have been national level, but that wasn't enough for me. So I had to have something different then, you know. And then I had just was it tough to deal with like that maybe that bubble bursting of okay I'm not going to the Olympics or not uh, off the table. No, it wasn't because I transferred my energy from then my running career to my coaching career. So the minute I got back home, I started coaching the Fermanagh hurling team, which for a lot of people it wouldn't mean a lot. For me, it meant a lot. I'm from Fermanagh. I love Fermanagh. This was our county team. Now hurling wasn't given a lot of credence in Fermanagh. Can you maybe in 60 seconds explain hurling? Because yeah. I'm assuming most of the listeners, including me, uh, don't know what hurling okay. is. Hurling is the fastest uh, field game in the world. It's played with a stick in your hand and a really hard ball. Which a, you showed me yesterday, it's right? Called a slipper. Similar to a baseball. To a baseball, yeah. And you hit the ball as hard as you can. If you get it through the sticks like a rugby post above, you get a point. If you get it into the goals like a football goal, you get three points. Uh, the rules in hurling are there are no rules. Just don't just don't hit above the head. It's a tough physical sport. You've got to be very brave and courageous. It's 15 against 15, man on man. So you, I, if, if you're my opponent, I mark you for the whole game. We hit each other, we shoulder each other, but it's a tough game. It's a great game, uh, but you know it's very, very fast and very skillful. And the higher up you go level-wise, the more skillful it is, you know. So I coached the Fermanagh Hurling team. So that was your first coaching gig? It was my first ever coaching team uh, gig. And it was Seamus Dunigan, who I met last year or last week at the funeral. So thanks, Seamus, that brought me in. He still wants 20% of my earnings. He told me last week at the funeral, during the funeral. So we trained really, really hard. But I had learned how to train differently. Training before I got involved with Fermanagh was 20 laps of the pitch, play a game and go home. And that was it. So we did a proper warm-up. We did some skill development. We did a 20 minute condition game and, and then we did a cool down and went home. So that year we won the Ulster Championship, which is our province. We then went into the All-Ireland Series and we won the All-Ireland Championship at junior level. First time we ever did it. And it was just probably my second best ever sporting experience in my life. No money at all. We didn't even get fed after training. The fact we got a kit bag with Fermanagh hurling and a tracksuit, that's all we wanted and that's all we got for winning an All-Ireland title. And that was a fulfilling experience which made you realise that this is something you wanted to do, work with teams? Yeah, and that, that occurred 25 years ago and it's as clear in my memory as it was yesterday and it's still one of my best ever sporting uh, memories and achievements. And that really gave me the grow, it's an Irish word for it, gave me the feel for wanting to be involved in conditioning teams. And that, that started. And how long were you there for? I was there for one year. And then I accepted a contract in England to lecture in sports science. And I went over to a place called Workington in Cumbria. I, I started delivering the sports science program they had, but I realized it was so different to what the Americans did. So I asked the course coordinator, could I devise my own uh, modules? So I sat down and did that at night time. It got approved by the sports science board and then they adopted my sports science course to run then as, a, as an alternative. And then at the same time, I got involved with the local rugby league team. And that so you're, you're first of all, you started teaching at a very- Lecturing, yeah. Electri yeah, at a yeah. very young age. 24. So you're, so you're bringing knowledge that you acquired yourself studying in America and some experience that you've had in America, positive and negative. Um, and you're bringing that and now lecturing, creating your own modules of this course. 
Um, now I'm going to ask you again, the rugby league, you said? Yeah, rugby league, yeah. So mate, 60 seconds for the listeners who don't know what the rugby league is, because also rugby, there's different um, types of rugby, right? Yeah. There's a rugby league, rugby union. There's rugby league and rugby union. The succinct difference is rugby union is 15 aside, rugby league is 13 aside. Rugby union is considered very much like a public school. There's middle- also, sorry, there's also, there's also seven asides now. In rugby union. Yeah, that's just played with sevens on the full pitch, so there's a lot more space. The, six, the, the major difference between rugby league and rugby union is rugby league is played predominantly in the north of England. It's the biggest sport in Australia, believe it or not, rugby league, and it's also played quite extensively in, in, in New Zealand. Rugby league is considered very much a working class sport, with the, the people turn professional for 15, 16. Uh, rugby union is more of an international sport. It's England, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, France, Scotland, England, Wales. It has a bigger viewing audience and there's a lot more money involved in rugby union and it has corporate sponsorship, which rugby league's very much a domestic sponsorship uh, on that level. I prefer rugby league. It's more in uh, probably succinct with my my lifestyle and, and my philosophy they're great to work with they're tough tough men and i've had some great experiences with rugby league so what's that what uh, brought you to that first rugby league team was it just geographically because you were there no uh i was bored out of my head over in england uh because basically i went to work at nine and home at 3 30 i had nothing to do so i i offered uh circuit sessions to the staff which I used to make up mixed tapes. So I'll have a certain part of a track of a song for 30 seconds where they work, 10 second break, another 30 second track. So th- there's the music come back in. So I was doing that one day to staff on a Wednesday. And I didn't realize when my session was over in the, in the college gym, the rugby boys were coming in. So they were looking in through the window at what we were doing. And uh, so just as the session was finishing, they came in and I said to my staff, okay, I'll see you on Friday. And they started picking up the equipment. And I said, excuse me, don't pick up my stuff. Put it back and get out. I didn't know who they were. They're a lot bigger than me. And the coach went, my, they haven't spoke to you like that before. I goes, I don't give a fuck who they are. Get out of my gym. Excuse the French. So they went out of the gym. I said, right, let's tidy up the gym. So he walked back in. He goes, my, Peter Walsh from uh, working in town. I goes, yeah, how you doing, mate? He goes, oh. I says, what are you doing here? So we're, we're going to do some fitness. He says, would you mind doing what you just did with your staff? To, to my place I goes no not really because they've got no manners you know so see you later so I walked out so the following week we're doing the same session with the staff and they turned up again this time they didn't come in he goes mate any chance I goes okay so I brought them in and just by chance I love Aussie music and there was a singer called Jimmy Barnes that I had on my mixtape he was in a band called Cold Chisel and that was some of the tracks so when they started working they were like we know Jimmy Barnes so I took the session and but it went quite well and at the end the coach goes he says oh we really enjoyed that he says have you worked have you ever worked with a rugby league team he goes i said i've never even held a rugby ball i explained the catholic protestant thing so we got chatting and he says why don't you come down sunday we're semi-pro and watch what we do i goes yeah okay fine i never even watched rugby on tv uh so one of the other members of staff was a big fan of the team that he coached because they got about five thousand fans even though semi-pro we got tickets bobbed down on the sunday watched the game, didn't have a clue what was going on, but loved the atmosphere, loved the razzmatazz, loved the contact. Met up with Peter, the coach afterwards in the bar and said, look, at the, I'm an ex-runner. I could probably do some training sessions, but I probably need to play the game to get a feel for what, what you do. And that was always my mantra, Danny. 
I always like to experience the sport first before I did it. So I said, can I play for one of the teams? And he went, mate, you're about eight stone. You're going to get killed. I goes, well, stick me somewhere or I won't get hit. He goes, we'll put you on the wing. I goes, okay. He says, Wednesday night we have a thirds game here. Be down at seven o'clock. I goes, great. I goes, what do I do? He goes, just catch the ball and run. I goes, okay. And I didn't understand offside. I didn't understand any of the rules. So I talked out. I think there's about four people there and a dog. So I came out anyway and uh, game started. I caught the ball. I got hit. So I ran, got hit. I was like this. I was like, Jesus Christ. I played the ball, which restarts the, uh, the game. Got hit again. And then I had to come off. I lasted about, I think, about 11 minutes. But that was enough. Enjoyable and, experience then? Yeah, yeah, but I had to do <laughs> it. But the thing was then, for about two weeks after, every bone in my body, from my head to my feet. Now, I was very aerobically fit at this time. But after about 12 minutes before I come off, I was exhausted. Different type of fitness. So that was a real learning tool. Always train for the sport you're going to play. So then I got involved training the team. Uh, brought in a lot of the philosophies I learned in America. I watched what they did, analyzed the movement. I, I understood the energy systems that you used. I learned what happens in the tackle. I learned what happens on getting back on, because you've got to go up 10 and back 10 con continuously to get on side. And that's how we trained. And we went from the bottom of the league to the top 10. And that was the year that Murdoch, uh, Rupert Murdoch was split in the league and the top 10 then went full time for the Sky Super League that was coming the next year. So then it was a great time to be, be involved. So it was a big big a year to finish Huge up. Huge year. We, 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 we crept into the top 10 and we went uh, full time then. So And you stayed on with them after I, that? I stayed on lecturing in the college for two yeah. years and I took the players in the morning and the night time. There's times they couldn't be there during the day because college commitments. And that, then, we, then that's when uh, uh, David uh, Lloyd came in and brought me to Hull full-time football and rugby. Wow. Um, and did, at that time, did you believe that like, you'd be working with the likes of the All Blacks? As, as a person who's never held a rugby ball in your life? Well, probably even back then, I didn't understand the magnitude of the All Blacks or Manchester United because I, you know, I'd stopped. To me, uh, when you're a runner, all you watch is athletics and running. Went to England. I had one year of the hurling back home. Still hadn't been big into, into rugby. I didn't understand some of the superstars of the rugby world, you know. I, I loved rugby league at that stage, so I was watching the likes of Wiggins and Helens, Leeds, all the big teams. But working them was small fry compared to them. And I'll give you a great example. We'd played Wigan the first year of proper Super League. Now, they, they were a, bit, a big gun for years. They were like the Manchester United of, of rugby league. It's 44 nil at half time. And we're in the dressing rooms and like, like, like what, what do you say? A great story. The coach is going off his head. He goes, hey, you all think you're superstars. You're all full time. He says, you're walking around the town at night time thinking big time, Charlie. You're coming in at three o'clock in the morning. And the players had their heads down and somebody whispered, three o'clock in the morning? Who's coming in early? Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? You know, just that was the nature of rugby league. But, you know, it's just a great sport, you know, but it yeah. took a while to, 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 to develop some of the, the lesser teams at that time, you know. But even not understanding the magnitude, um, did that give you maybe an, a, um, an advantage working with those players? Because, again, maybe, maybe some young coaches that are working with professional athletes have that they have too much respect, too much reverence, where maybe they're afraid to tell them, you know, to put them in their place when needed. 
I think you've nailed it. Because I didn't know who they were and I, I wasn't an ex-rugby player, it helped in two ways in that I didn't have a preconceived idea how to train. So everything that I did, I made up because I had an open book. Not having played rugby, I had to think of ways to condition them in a way that was appropriate to the game that what they're doing, appropriate to the position that they play. And because I didn't have an experience of doing it as a player, it was all new. I didn't understand who the big superstars were. So I had a, a, some pretty simple rules. Don't be late for training. Put your weights away. If we're going to do a run, get your feet behind the line. And I would ball them out if they were late. In fact, they wouldn't get in. I would ball them out if they didn't put their weights away. And I didn't care if they made 200 grand a week, if they were a football player or a rugby player. The rules applied to everybody. So there's me, this little skinny Irish fella saying, put your effing weights away. You know, full of it. And they were like, they, they weren't used to it. They were like, they, they were used to being revered. And it worked, you know, and it worked now. Might not work all the time, but it worked for me. I'm like, put your effing weights away. Be on time, you don't get in. When we do a run, get your feet behind the line. Don't be sloppy, don't be lazy, be disciplined. So those are principles that I've um, read a lot about um, and been lectured about as well. And it's always, always with a connection to the All Blacks because they're almost seen as the ideal when it comes to perfectionism, uh, being humble, winning. So it almost seems like you're a um, like that should have been an easy transition for you working with that level and those that type of um, individuals. Did you did you feel that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose and when you talk about the All Blacks, it always comes back to culture, and part of the interview process with the All Blacks was they spoke more about my background, my beliefs, my philosophies, than actually my expertise in strength and conditioning. They wanted to know where I was from, where I was brought up, what my family did, because they wanted to see did that fit into their culture. And then when you embrace the, the All Blacks, you see that. Like, But I, I would have experienced that before. When I worked at the Ospreys in Wales, we had two ex-All Blacks, uh, Philo Tiatia and Mar Marty Holler, who'd played for the All Blacks for years. And when they'd re retired from the All Blacks and were playing in Europe, they were the first people I seen. We were playing in Connacht, a rugby match, that once the game was over, they picked up the brush and they swept the dressing rooms. They picked up their tape off the pitch and put it in the bin. They picked up the water bottles that weren't left. And that was part of their culture. And you, even though they weren't then involved with All Blacks, that still transcended. So they do all the small things right. It's a bit like, if you're going to do a sprint and the line's here, don't put your toe half an inch over the line. It makes no difference in the big picture, but it's the discipline is, I'm going to do it right, because that can transcend into the game. If you're going to run to a certain distance, run to that distance and even further, then come back. Don't take shortcuts. Cause if you do Give it extras. Yeah, and if you do that in, in training, you do it in life, you'll do it in the game. So all those small things, and it adds up over time. You know. Were you amazed working with, and was it 100% of the individuals playing for the All Blacks? Did you feel they were really bought into that culture absolutely you know they, they was that astounding to you because again i've it's always um you every team i've belonged to whether sports or other parts of life there's always a percentage of people who are like that and a percentage who are not there's always the percentage who are not yes and can i quantify that before i talk about the all blacks in in my experience in football or soccer as some people call it 60-70% were dickheads, as you're referring to. 30-30% weren't. Rugby league, 90% were brilliant. And you have one or two 
who are a bit dickheads. Not not too many. Rugby Union, probably the same. Nineteen ninety five were brilliant. Maybe even ninety seven. In All Blacks there was zero because in two thousand and seven, after they bombed in the World Cup, that was their mantra: no dickheads. And they dealt with that. They dealt with the dickheads. And once you have that culture, and that philosophy, then it's 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 self self satisfying, you know. And that that's what it was. People like Dan Carter, who was a world legend at the time, was as humble as me or you or somebody you meet in the street. You wouldn't even know he was an all black. Just the way he was a family man. He loved his family. He did rugby and he loved rugby and he was brilliant at what he did. But for him, that was his career. It wasn't the end all and be all. That sort of stuff, you know. Philo Tiatia at the Ospreys, a former All Black legend, one of the nicest people you could meet on the pit on the pitch. But the minute he crossed that whitewash, a complete animal, an animal, would never hurt somebody. But you got out of his way. He didn't have a sidestep. He just went through you, you know. But he could when he stepped off, he was thanking you. He was thanking his opponents. He was very very humble, you know. So it almost seems like from the beginning you had to almost pave your own way and discover this whole world of uh, sports science and strength and conditioning and see how it can apply to this multi-sport world you kind of found yourself in. Um, did you have any mentors or do you have any mentors? I was so lucky, Danny, in that, and I'm not just saying this, I probably had four of the best mentors in the world of strength and conditioning just by luck. The first one that I had was when I went to Hull and David Lloyd brought me there. Uh, the coach who I told you about, Peter, Peter Walsh, he had a, a good friend, David Boyle, who was an ex-rugby league legend. He played for New South Wales. He played for the Kangaroos, which is the national rugby team. He had gone into strength and conditioning. And he came over to Hull and spent two weeks with me on the strength side of things. One of the best mentors I could have. I learned so much from Boyle and we're still good friends to this day, we only spoke recently. Uh, he was in Belfast to see me last year. He, he taught me just the discipline, put your weights away, be on time, train hard, don't train long. He was fantastic. I then, uh, just through complete, uh, I suppose, inquisition, I went over to Australia with the Great Britain Touch Rugby team, as the, it's like seven aside touch rugby, I, as the fitness coach. But the minute I landed, I cleared off and went to the Brisbane Broncos and spent time with the absolute unique Dan Baker, who is the, the CEO of the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. At that time, Dan was head of strength with the Brisbane Broncos, spent two weeks with him and it was just amazing. And between him and Boyley, they really started to shape my philosophy in strength and conditioning. So I'd kept in touch with those guys and then as my career progressed, I went to Leeds, went to St Helens, I then, when I made the move then to Rugby Union and became the National Fitness Coach for Rugby Union, I got to meet Ashley Jones, who was the All Black Strength Coach, and me and Ashley struck up a great relationship, and uh, I'd spent time with him, and he spent time with me, and we became great friends. We played the All Blacks over in New Zealand with Ireland, so I spent time with him, and went out for beers after the game, we did some Q&As, and that was great, and then it was him that promoted me or encouraged me to go for the All Blacks job when he retired from the All Blacks. And then then uh, after my time in Rugby Union, I got, I got to, uh, in not got in touch, I got to meet a guy called Mick Clegg, who was Alex Ferguson's fitness coach at Man United. So me and uh, Mick collaborated. We did some work on uh, football conditioning. We did a lot of work on quantum consciousnesses. 
is how we train the brain in a conditioned perspective. So we'd swap the ideas, make work with Ronaldo, Beckham, Kane, Giggs, all these guys. And I, we had a lot of parallels in my work with Brian O'Driscoll, Paul O'Connell, Ron O'Gara, some of the football players I work with, and there's a lot of parallels. So we'd combine our, our, our skill set and did a lot of work in Europe and in the UK and Ireland on football conditioning at the really elite level and how we involved using quantum consciousness, which is brain training in a conditioning perspective. So not only do you train the body, you train the mind, you involve the ball, you involve skill, Olympic lifting, agility, speed, reaction. It was amazing. So four fantastic mentors. And then obviously my connection with Mick then led, led to the Man Manchester United connection as well, you know. So I was just very, very lucky. And um, maybe it's my personality, I don't know, but I just seem to meet great people, you know. And do you now find, now that you're on the experience side of the spectrum, um, are you, do you have a mentor, or are you mentoring anyone? Do you have any mentees out there that are people reaching out to you that you formed relationships with and are trying to pass on maybe because, you know, you've um, squeezed out some, uh, some juice from these amazing people that you just described and you can, and then you use that to form Mike McGurn's philosophy. And are you passing that on to anyone? Yeah, I, I pass it on, but not in a structured way. What, what I do is because those four people were so good to me and so generous with their time, information, and th th they led to me, th they, they led to my philosophy that there is no big secrets in what, what we do. So what I do now, if anybody contacts me, I never refuse them, whether that's information, if that's a training plan, if it's something they need to educate them. I have had an internships that I've taken on that said, can I come and shadow you? And one of my best ever interns, Rob McCallie, Rob Mulcahy from Kerry, which is about a seven hour drive from here, come up every Monday, every Wednesday and was brilliant. He's now had a performance in a GA setup. He's done really well. So people like that's great to see, but SNC is a very small industry. Globally, it's very small. Everybody knows each other. I know the Aussie SNCs, English, Kiwis, they know us, blah, blah, blah. So I've always said it's a small industry, a small profession, and we've got to put back into it because it's been very good to us. So I never refuse anybody anything if I can. If I can help, definitely. If I can give advice, information, definitely. I, I share all my programs because they're not rocket science, okay? And I have a philosophy. It's not the program. It's not, the, it's not worth the paper it's written on unless the athlete brings the intensity. And that's the coach's job is to shape that environment and that intensity so they, they bring it they bring it every time. And is that something you focus on with your athletes? Is like coaching them to bring that motivation, that dedication? Big time. I say when you walk to that door of the gym, you have 40, 45 minutes to become a better athlete. When you walk out, you're never getting that back. It's gone. If you don't achieve what you started to achieve, you've wasted one unit that you'll never get again. When you step on the training pitch, we're gonna work hard here for 40, 45 minutes. I can't make you be intense, so you turn up with the right mindset that you're gonna achieve your potential and you're gonna maximize that 45 minutes because once it's gone, you're never getting it back again. And if you mess up, that's one unit less that you, you, you're gonna to have to get to the Holy Grail, whatever that may be. I heard you say, I think this is uh, connected I heard you say yesterday, um, um, our camera guy asked you about uh, caffeine before uh, training and you say that you don't encourage it to your athletes because then it almost becomes like a crutch that they rely on and then when they don't have it before a session, mentally they're just not there. Yeah. Do you think 
most athletes, a lot of athletes have too many of these crutches that we rely on in order to walk in and be motivated and be dedicated to whatever we're about to try and accomplish so that when we don't have one of these crutches or the main crutch that we rely on like caffeine or a, I think you use another example, like a pre-workout shake or whatever that might be. Um, are we too reliant on those different things? It certainly has crept in over the last 10 or 15 years. Like we have to remember what's the underlying philosophy of training is that you go in and work hard, okay? But there's so many distractions now that walking into a gym with a pre-workout, with a foam roll, with a band, with a hockey ball, with a, a tape, there's all sorts. And before they even start training, they're spending 45 minutes before they even lift one weight. And that's what I call energy leaks, okay? When you come into an environment, you have to come in and rip the place apart as tense as you can be. But if you've been distracted, I need to take a drink, I need to take this, take that, this pill, that pill, I gotta do this stretch, that stretch, this activation. You're using energy that you need to actually maximize the training session. I'm not saying it, it it's not effective, but in small micro doses over a period of time, but it shouldn't become a 45 minute pre-activation rehab, prehab session before you actually do the gym session. Prehab and rehab is so, so important, but in micro doses at certain times, it doesn't necessarily have to be done in the gym or before the gym. It can be done as a recovery element type thing. I have seen athletes become very reliant on pre-workout. They take it and they get good response when they train. So then they take a bit more, good response and more. And then caffeine is a stimulant and you've got to take more and more to get the effect. And all of a sudden, if they don't have it, their mind goes. So this, they need to be careful. It has to become intrinsic. It's got to be an intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic. Extrin intrinsic factors so similarly to that again obviously this is more sensitive because i'm going to bring up the food um food is also a crutch um, and i know in my playing career um, i was food was a crutch for me because you know i used to listen to all these dietitians and all these things people used to tell us as a team you have to eat this many hours before you have to do all these different things so that when you don't maybe now you eat four hours before not three hours before two hours before not three hours before psychologically it messes with you um, and then you're not as prepared or like you mentioned now you fast for a prolonged period of time and you're fully energized and fully ready to go uh, but for an individual who relies on food as a crutch to perform any activity um, even filming with a camera can really mentally you can just be gone when you don't have that crutch to to lift you up and keep you up there um so yeah so so is that something that also you, do you see that within you yeah well i suppose like a lot of distance runners unfortunately i, I developed an eating disorder as a runner because we were told to be as light as possible uh, to maintain your a high part of weight ratio. So me being me, end up eating white rice for about four months and nothing else for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, and then you develop an eating disorder. Uh, athletes probably aren't that well educated in, on food. And this is going to be controversial, but I'll stand over this. A lot of sports nutritionists, nutritionists aren't either. They always advocate high carbs, high carbs, high carbs and eat plenty of carbs the night before and the day before but the reality is unless you're running a two hour plus marathon you don't even kick into that glycogen system so you don't need as many carbs as they say there's a lot of miseducation about food 
I've got to the stage in my life where it's about moderation. A little bit of everything is okay for you, but not too much of one thing. So don't overindulge in too much. Athletes need to learn that for competition, you should eat what gets you in the correct mindset for that competition. So if it is a banana sandwich 19 minutes before the competition, then so be it. But don't be so ingrained or indoctrinated by what the, the specialists say because everybody's individual and everybody's different. You don't need to have a, a big bowl of pasta five hours before you play a football match because the football match lasts 90 minutes and it's intermittent. It's stop, start, stop, start. So you never really deplete that glycogen that you build up anyway. You know, so I hope that answers your question. You know, yeah, but, but like, did you ever see um, in yourself that food was a crutch? You, you know, you wake up, you need to eat because how are you going to function today if you don't eat? When I, when I was competing, I was of the mindset, if I don't get a high glycogen meal into me three hours before I race, I'm going to be less energy, I'm going to feel lethargic, I'm going to be tired. Uh, but that was because it was, it was hammered into us. It's only when I started uh, coaching and looking into nutrition and the physiology of what food does to you that I understood it a lot better. And that's hence the fasting. I see the benefits of fasting, what it can do to you, what, what health benefits it, it brings. But again, it's a bit like the prescribing training for, for rugby league and for sports. I have to do it and see what it does before I can talk about it. And that, that's why I do it. But no, you know, there is certain eating disorders within athletes, unfortunately. And I think once you can discover a good sports nutritionist, they're worth their weight in gold. They really are. Because if they can make it common sense and make it simple, then that's what athletes need. I love talking about things that affect the brain because I'm um, or the psychology of performers because I'm I really am a, a believer then that it has a its weight in to determine the outcome is so much greater than people think of it um, you know people I think outweigh the I think it outweighs what people think um, you know, I think people will focus more on the skill, more on the fitness, more on the strength and completely ignore like the what stimulates their brain and what their brain relies on and the psychological psychological state that they're in in order to perform. And again, I think perform can be trying to win a world championship and it can also be trying to get what you're supposed to get done this day done um, in the best way possible, reaching that line every time in every aspect of your life. Um why you know you mentioned like 2007 all blacks um decided that zero tolerance for dickheads as yeah. you put as you put it so why don't so like you you worked at manchester united um and you were there at a less glamorous obviously you know the standard obviously manchester united is an incredible institution top 0.1 percent in the world um but you were there post sir alex yes. um yeah. era and the the club was in a bit of a disarray uh some will argue still is um why isn't there a zero tolerance to eliminating dickheads from the changing room from the staff i i think in a football context it's down more to the athletes the athletes are very selfish and they're more worried about themselves their paycheck and their image that's what it boils down to roy Keane always harps on about the current football player like they're into social media, how they look. And he's quite right. You know, it wasn't like that back in the day. You know, players get paid a lot of money 
But the problem that I see, Danny, is they get paid a lot of money from a young age and it, it clouds their, their thought process and that becomes their goal is fame, money. And then they aren't given the life skills to cope with everyday situations. Like people do their shopping for them, they buy their clothes, they book their holidays, they drive them to train them. You know, it, it's almost, it, it's actually, it's not almost, it's a surreal lifestyle. I would experience that to a small level with Ireland, that when we were training for Six Nations and internationals, we were in camp in a hotel for nine weeks, didn't make your bed, didn't cook your food, didn't clean your dishes, didn't do your laundry. It was just, and then you come out, this is only after nine weeks, and you literally couldn't cope. You needed a schedule to see what you're gonna wear today, where you're gonna be at 12 o'clock. That, that's football times a million you know, magnified. So it's it's not a healthy uh, lifestyle, environment and culture, you know, and it's, it's not getting any better. So it corrupts, it corrupts them. But but still, because you will agree with me that um, I think you quantified it as uh, maybe 30% of dickheads in uh, from from the from the football athletes that you worked with. 60. Oh, 60, sorry. 60, 70. 60, 70. Yeah. Um, but there is a coach, there is a staff that is selecting these players to play for their team to represent their club so what's what's what, what's the difference between the, because everyone's claiming we're bringing the best players we're bringing the people that fit the culture but they're obviously not is it just because footballers are corrupt corrupted no, i think the recruitment process by the coach if he's allowed to do it is a quick fix culture i need to get x player in because he will give me so many goals and it will get me to win a title or keep me in my job. It'll only last one, possibly two years, but then he'll be gone anyway. So there's no long-term planning. There's no, okay, let's build for the future. What's our long-term athletic development plan here? It's, I'm just gonna survive this year. I wanna keep my job, so I need him to get 20 goals. He's an absolute dickhead of a person, but if he gets me 20 goals, I don't care, and we'll deal with that. We'll deal with the fallout. I see. So, like someone like uh, a institution like the All Blacks, maybe have the privilege to look long term. Big time, big time, and they would rather take a hit for a couple of years and build that culture long term than likes of some of the football teams that are bringing in players, and they'll pay him forty million for one year. He'll get those twenty five goals, but he'll, he'll create mayhem in the dressing room. But then that manager might be gone. It's not his problem. And I suppose the, the, the nature of football, because it is so short term, you can't blame the manager. He's trying to protect his own back. There's a lot of paranoia in football, a lot of backstabbing, and a lot of people are just looking over their shoulder going, I'm all right, Jack, to hell with you. Yeah, uh, yeah and it, it makes sense. It's like survival. Everyone wants to you know, uh, stay in the game for as long as possible. And that happens in my, in my department in football. A lot of S&C coaches will not challenge players because if they do, that player can get rid of them. Yeah. I've had some stand-ups with football players, because because it's not my, my thing, and I, I, it's not that I'm bothered about losing my job, but if I get sacked from my job, so, so be. I've stood up to players knowing that I could be sacked tomorrow. Now, thankfully, I haven't, but it does get you respect. I deliberately went in one day looking to start an argument with a player, because I knew if I did that and stood up to them, it gives me credence going forward, and that's what I did, and it worked. So you obviously, you must have known the magnitude of what you were walking into when you walked into uh, Carrington Man United for the first time. Yeah, because of Hull, Leeds and Everton, I knew the culture. It's toxic. Yeah. It's tough. There's a bully boy culture in football. You've got to stand up for yourself. You have to fight your corner. Now, it doesn't have to be physical. It doesn't have to be fists. But verbally, you've got to be able to stand up. Because if a football player smells weakness, 
you are in big trouble. They will walk all over you and they will hammer you and hammer you. And so, for yeah, for not only um, SNC coaches or staff members, but also new players coming new players in, right? Too, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, ruthless. It is ruthless. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you played. You know what it's like. No one's there to help you. No, you're on your own, Jack. You're on your own. You know, you're, you're yeah. paddling your own canoe. You really are. So. Yeah. I um again, I was you know I I played in Israel growing up, um and I. Thank you, um and I. My first introduction, maybe, to this ruthlessness was I came for a round of trials in, in England. I was at Brentford, at QPR, and Oldham Athletic. Um, and my first introduction to it was I realized that I thought, you know, I thought I was coming into, because I came from a place where everyone around me was my friend. You know, we went to school together. Everyone's there to help each other. Everyone's uh, supporting each other on the pitch. And then I showed up and I realized that I'm here to potentially take someone's spot. So no one no one wants me here. No one. And even though I'm not here to take the striker's spot because I'm a center back, the striker is already friends with the center back. So no one wants him. They, the coach the coach maybe has some interest in the in the center back that's already there. So he doesn't want me there. So no one wants you there. So you have to prove yourself. So that's why it's um you know, it's it's like the the, the chicken and the egg. Uh, because how can you not be selfish when everyone around you yeah, is selfish, and if you're if you're selfless, you just get eaten up alive. And I'll tell you a quick story that sort of parallels that. When it, my first football job was with Hull City, when David Lloyd brought me in, so he brought me in, and the backstory there was he'd sacked everybody at the club. He wanted a fresh start, so I went down the hull. There was no staff, no manager, no assistant coach. So he eventually appointed appointed Mark Hately from Glasgow Rangers into Milan, England striker. And Mark's assistant was Billy Kirkwood, who'd been the, the Glasgow Rangers reserve team manager. Now, uh, Billy was a Protestant from Glasgow. I'm a Catholic from Northern Ireland. I'd been taking the training, blah, blah, blah. So his first day there, I was taking the warm-up, and I tend to do all my warm-ups with the ball. So I'm warming up with the ball, and he, start making smart, he starts making smart comments. So maybe me, 23, 24, I said, if you've got a problem, if you have, come over here, we'll sort it out in front of the whole group. And he goes, I'll bat to you. He goes, you bat to me. And I walked over and I squared at them and he nearly shit himself. But that, and, and at this stage, I didn't really, but that gave me big credence and respect. I, that wasn't planned at that stage. That was only my first gig. But from there on in, I had the, the respect from everybody. And, and that's, yeah. that's how I learned. You know? So what I actually meant to ask you um, a couple of minutes ago about Man United actually was on the positive side. So obviously there's this toxic and selfish culture. Uh, but you show up to Manchester United, like, you know, even at Northern Ireland, probably every kid here grew up dreaming of playing for Manchester United. What what did that feel like? Was it a milestone? No. No. I I was, and was too old. Maybe one thing to add in there before you answer was also because you have that, uh, your men, one of your mentors, Mick Clegg, also has that um, con- deep connection, deep-rooted connection to Manchester United. So showing up, what did you feel? Uh... Again, because it was football, I'd done three f- previous football jobs beforehand. It, you know, it, it wasn't any enlightening. I was f- well into my career. I'd experienced probably better things from a sporting context. I, I wasn't hanging out for the gig. The, the way I got the gig was when I was at Hull, Warren Joyce was the captain of the team. He had retired. He'd gone over to coach the United on the 16s, on the 18s and reserve team. It was him who brought me in. I knew Warren. I knew the culture of football. It wasn't that I was resentful, but I was I was doing a favour to him. It was like a favour to him. I didn't want to say no. So I wasn't expecting anything. I just took it as a normal job. 
I was also past the stage of worshipping athletes or well, I probably never was at that stage. To me, people are people no matter who you are. We're all the same. And I was just going over to do a job. I was away from my family and kids. That didn't sit well with me anymore. So I was going to give it a go. So there was no expectation. I just... I suppose, as an SNC coach, the minute you step into a gym or on the training pitch, you're acting. So I wanted to be a professional, but the minute I walked in, I was being professional. But if it didn't work out, I wouldn't have lost any sleep over it. Makes sense, because you also walked into it kind of... Football set the stage from what what you were going to walk into. Um, I want to just uh, talk to you also about the quantum consciousness. Um, was that... Did I say it correctly? Is it quant- yeah, is quantum it- consciousness. Yes. Yeah, quantum yeah. consciousness. Um, is that something that Mick Clegg introduced to you? That's what Mick introduced. And Mick just brought his book out last year. It was forwarded by Ronaldo. Cristiano forwarded his book from. And Mick was a, the pioneer in quantum consciousness on, on a global football scale. He'd done research in the research centre in Quebec in Canada. He's done a lot of research on how the brain works and how we train it. And a lot of his work with the likes of Ronaldo, Giggs, Keane, Scholes, he had developed their, their quantum conscious of brain power to become better players. Does he talk about that in the book yeah, as well? Yeah. Um, and and is that, so is that something you've implemented? I, I've training? used a lot since I met Mick, yeah. In all my athletes, netball, golf, hockey, all, all kinds of And do you see that effect that it huge, has? Huge, huge. And the, player, the athletes love it because it's, it's cutting edge, it's new, it's, it's never been done globally apart from make it man you. And it's something that will come in over time, but these things take time. And it's in a way for an athlete or anyone training, um, it, sh- it should also add some element of spice, some fun, no? Because, you know, it's, I think it's because uh, training can be very robotic and very challenging mentally to do the same thing all the time. Yeah, well, what it does is I think it really improves the athlete's ability to make the right decision at the right time in the right context of the competition. And that's why Mick brought it Man U, and that's where I see the benefits. So it's all about making decision making, make the right decision at the right time. And Mick gives a great example. When uh, Van Nistelrooy was going for goal, he didn't think, he just did through the quantum consciousness training. So he's in a box full of players. There could be six, seven players. There's 65,000 people at Old Trafford. What does he think about when the ball comes in? He doesn't. He just does. So because of this repetition and training? Yes. And he just didn't need to think. And Mick also makes the point, when we do uh, rondos, he never goes into the box. Because he's always thinking in warm-up, I'm here to train the brain. And he uses that as his brain training. That's an amazing concept. Fantastic. Um, So we obviously... Uh, oh, actually, before jumping into that, I wanted to uh, just maybe get you excited a little bit, maybe a bit angry. But I want to hear, because just because it's a term I heard you throw out a couple of times, uh, some, you know, in the SNC world, some YouTube training, some bro science. You know, this it's obviously, it's very popular, very trendy, certain elements of training. Um, how, how does that, how does that, um, how does that interject or how does that... Um, How does that play in your world or do you just completely disregard everything that's out there on this internet? No, I I think as an S&C coach, you're always learning and it's it's always evolving. There is a lot of rubbish out there in S&C. There's a lot of rubbish, a lot of stuff that hasn't been proven. It's not backed up by research. It's just people putting stuff up on YouTube or Instagram and this works. And it's hard because the current younger generation follow that and think it's true, you know. I think people have to figure out for themselves what works what works and doesn't work, you know. 
I'm not knocking what's on YouTube. There's some good stuff on YouTube, some very good stuff, but there's also a lot of rubbish. I see videos and I'm going, oh my God, do not do that because you're going to hurt yourself, you know. And some of these videos are from established institutions. I see a lot of stuff in America, in American uh, colleges and American high schools where kids aren't lifting correctly. And their philosophy is, okay, if they get injured, we'll bring somebody else in, but they shouldn't because that's somebody's child. And once you have kids, it definitely changes your philosophy how you train somebody because i got to treat every athlete as somebody's child. I wouldn't want that done to my child, so I'm not going to do that to somebody else's child. So if you're going to teach somebody to squat, how to deadlift, you better teach them correctly and safely because somewhere down the line, if they're not doing it correctly, they're going to have a back injury or groin injury and it could be could be career changing or, or life changing. So do it right. There's a lot of research out there suggesting that one of the, um, the biggest... Um the biggest aspects to determine someone's longevity, you know, how long they will live and, and functionally um, is their ability to pass certain strength tests. Um, where does that come in in day to day life, not performance, not trying to be the best at something or be a world champion? Why is it important really for everyone to follow some level of strength training development? two levels number one if you have a certain level of strength no matter what age you are if you're 6 16 or 60 it helps prevent injury because you react better to situations your musculature your joints and your lig ligaments are stronger so there's less chance of them pulling and that's vital for anybody the other thing is it helps you carry out everyday duties far better more efficient so if you have a stronger lower back you'll pick things up, up better if your lower back's weak you'll compensate in some other way and end up pulling the muscle in another part of the body. Not necessarily the lower back, but it will manifest itself somewhere else in the body. So strength training from nine to 19 to 90 is so important. And even, even a 90 year old can benefit from strength training because it helps them function so much better throughout their day. There's also the element of everyone will get injured at some point, somehow, right? Some, some, something will happen to you if you live long enough that you will face injuries, even if you're strong and you follow all the, all the correct protocols and develop yourself. Where does strength training come in for you when someone does get injured? Because I, feel, I think for a lot of people, um, they might be you know, on, a, on a good training regimen, they might be developing themselves, and then they, they might face an injury, another injury, and it kind of sways them completely off track. Well, basically, rehab and prehab is a modified version of strength and conditioning. So if you are injured here and you want to get back to doing strength training, your rehab and prehab preempts that. And it's a modified version of what you will be doing when you get back to full fitness and injury-free. So all elements of strength training in the prehab and, and rehab context is vital because you've got to go through those steps to get the musculature, the joints, the ligaments, or whatever it is that's injured, back to, to where it was now if you break a bone you can't fix that it's got to be in a cast take some calcium eat well get your minerals and vitamins that sort of way but from a, a musculature and joint ligament point of view it, it's vital it's imperative that you do it you know i always hear and i think i think i hear it a lot because it's the easiest one to say and implement but people love um, rest rest is important but too much rest is almost as bad as doing too little training or too much training. You have to build resilience and robustness. And if you rest too much in your training, in your training days, in your training sessions, you're not building that resilience and robustness that you need to execute things correctly. So too much rest is bad, too little rest is bad. 
I heard or read about it or heard it maybe in another podcast that um, the people that experience uh, the joint pains are people that don't use their joints. Yeah, well, you want to keep the synovial fluid running through all the elbow joint, knee joint. And if you sit in the chair all day, that synovial fluid is going to tighten up and stiffen up. And so will your joints. So I want to be 75 and still running. Do I have a chance? Absolutely. You can be 95 and still running. And I will, if I'm still alive, I'll be 95 and still lifting weights. Fantastic. So hopefully, hopefully me too. Um, you don't have to drop any names here, so I won't make you. Um, but how's it working with um, with movie stars? Yeah, you know because everyone uh, we we see the um, when a when a when a movie star is on screen, we see the outcome. We see uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, n- you know ten pack when he's on a, in a boxing movie or whatever it may be. Um, but there's a lot of work that they put in behind the scenes with individuals like yourself to get to that point. Yeah, uh, working with actors is quite enlightening in that they put, when they become focused, like their acting skills, when they're in, what's the word, when they're in sequence or in character, they can sometimes transfer into, into the gym. So when they train, they train hard. I suppose they have that element where when they focus on something, they know how to focus completely. The big thing I find with actors is the outside distractions, a bit like footballers. There's a lot of hangers on and distractions. But even the thing of you're playing music in the gym and Bruce Springsteen might come on and they go, oh yeah, I had dinner with him last week. And you're going, you had dinner with Bruce Springsteen? Yeah. Oh my God, that's like surreal. Now it's great. They're great to work with. I am working with a Belfast actor and I'll mention his name, Anto Boyle. He's doing a, a gig for Disney Plus at the minute over in Budapest. And he's really got into strength training, so much so that I'm going to fly out now in a few weeks and work with him on set because uh, part of his role is taking his top off so he's got to look good. So stuff like that is good. And Anto's very dedicated when he trains, particularly when he doesn't train, he can go off the rails and he won't mind me saying that. Yeah. So. Uh, look, it's awesome. Um, really is a pleasure working with you the last few days um, and thank you for being here and sharing so much of your experience. Hopefully we can have you more, uh, have you on more because um, I didn't get through my list of questions uh, because there's a lot to find out, especially as a a junkie for stories about culture and about, uh, you know, institutions like the All Blacks. Um, and as a Manchester United fan myself, I could really sit here and ask you so many questions, but you'd probably hate me if I did. Well, maybe we'll go over and see Mick and do Mick as well. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm actually excited to, I think I said this to you last time, but it's still on my list, but excited to read uh, Mick's book and uh, really get that insight um, into this quantum consciousness training that was implemented in these you know individuals like, uh, you know, you're throwing out names like Van Nistelrooy that made me cry a few times from joy yeah. uh, when he's scoring some goals. Um, but yeah, pleasure, really pleasure having you here. It was a great, great conversation. Um, and I hope everyone uh, at home enjoyed it as well. Um, we filmed a course. It'll be on neilasher.com, um, hopefully in the next couple months. Uh, we're very excited about it. It's a real insight into a bunch of things that we discussed, especially in strength development for prehab, rehab, all these different things. Um, and looking forward to the next time. And it's real stuff that we do. It's cutting out stuff that's been used in World Cups and Olympics and Commonwealth Games. It's not your bro science from various platforms. Exactly. Thank you very much, Mike. No problem. Pleasure.